Father in heaven, I thank you for this privilege to come into your presence in prayer. And I'm just asking now that you would bless us with the ability to understand. I pray that the message would be relevant and helpful. And I just pray that you would minister to each of our hearts, particularly those of us who maybe may be in the throes of failure right now and are wrestling with knowing what to do. And so I just pray that you would open our eyes to how you dealt with the precious servant of yours and the promise that's available to us. But I pray as Moses prayed that you would show us your glory, O now I pray. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When missionaries leave. So the theme text for GYC Northwest this year is found in Hosea chapter 6. Kind of begin with the scripture reading here. Hosea chapter 6 and verse 1. And then we'll actually go into our message Hosea chapter 6 and beginning in verse 1. And then we'll move on. It says, Come now and let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up, that we may live in his sight. Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning, and he will come to us like the rain, like the latter and the former rain to the earth. So what I'm going to be covering this evening is the story of a missionary who left, who ran, someone who stumbled. And we're just going to walk through the story of Elijah and see how it is that God dealt with him in the midst of his misstep and his weakness And what lessons we can learn from this. We're talking about the pursuit of God in the midst of our um, discouraging moments in our lives. So what I'm going to be walking through with you, and I'm going to be kind of overviewing for time's sake this evening, is basically the content you'll see in Prophets and Kings 11 to 13. If you haven't read that, it's better than any Hollywood script you'll ever see in your life. It's amazing, y'all. You're going to love it. Can I say y'all in the Pacific Northwest? Okay. And the narrative is basically in the general range of 1 Kings 17 through 19. So the man Elijah is given an amazing call and kind of a scary call and almost kind of seemingly unreasonable because the call that God has given this man is to tell Ahab, the king of Israel, that there's not going to be rain in this land until I say so, basically. And he not only says that it's not going to rain, but the problem is on his way to tell the king this, we're told this in Prophets and Kings, nothing that he sees would make him think that what he's saying is true. Right? These hills look completely uh, devoid of any lack of moisture. They're rolling with verdure. There's water everywhere. It looks lush and beautiful. And so this man has to believe what God says in spite of what he sees. And by faith, he makes this charge. And she says that like a thunderbolt on a clear sky, this guy comes in and drops a bomb and leaves. It's kind of like getting sucker punched. Like by the time that Ahab realized what has happened, Elijah's nowhere to be found. Like they, they, he doesn't even know where he is. He's still trying to make sense of what happened. Now, once Jezebel gets word of this, uh, she's livid, beyond livid. And they literally check every rock in Israel for this guy and want him dead. Because the drought does come. Hardship does come. And he's guided to the brook Cherith, and God miraculously feeds him through ravens bringing him meals. Now, in my mind's eye, I would love to believe that this food comes from Ahab's table. None of our inspired writings tell us this, but I would just love to see that was the case. But we don't have that. But what we do know is that God does miraculously provide for this man. Now, once the provision starts to run out at this location, 
he calls them to go visit the widow at Sarepta, and as she's gathering sticks, he asks her, would you please bring me a morsel of bread? And I believe he asks for water as well. Now, it's the drought, and she's really discouraged. She doesn't know what to do, and she says, look, I, I just got to be real with you. We don't have much. Like, I'm literally gathering these few twigs so that I can make a, a small loaf for my child and I because we're going to die after this. And he basically encourages her to take a step of faith and to trust me. If you take this step, I promise you God will provide. And God does provide and blesses this home uh, in the midst of great hardship. Now, after the three and a half years have finished, it's just barren. It's brown. It's gross, right? It's just, it's, it's a very difficult place to be. Jezebel and Ahab have actually sought after and tried to kill prophets of God and are killing prophets of God because they, they, they just want to get rid of all of them. If one guy's bad, they must all be bad. They brought us bad news. Get rid of them. But Elijah's given a second call at the conclusion of this time frame where he's told to now go back to Ahab and tell him that it is going to rain. There's going to be a showdown, first of all. And when he does this, Again, nothing he sees tells him that rain is coming. There's not a cloud in the sky. Everything is dry and parched and gross. And yet he has to believe what God says in spite of what he sees. Trusting God in circumstances the most forbidding. And that exact phrase will be used here in a moment. So then a servant of Ahab comes and sees him. And Elijah says, go tell him that I'm here and tell him to come meet with me. And he says, do you have any care for me at all? Right? Like, I don't know if you understand, but like, they literally have checked every rock in Israel. And if I come back and you're not here when I come back with Ahab, he's going to kill me. Don't you know that I fear the Lord? I had, you know, 50 servants in a cave here and fed them. And I put another 50 here and fed them. I fear the Lord. And Elijah says, I'm not going anywhere. Tell him I'm here. And when Ahab shows up, the introductory greeting that he gives him is, is that you, O troubler of Israel? Elijah's the problem, the righteous prophet, not the wicked pagan king, right? And he kind of banters back and forth. And then Elijah basically gives him a charge, and he says, bring everybody up to Mount Carmel, and it's basically to meet me at the flagpole. Now, I went to public school. I don't know what your situation was in your upbringing. But in the public school, whenever you had differences, you had to settle with somebody. You took care of it at the flagpole. It was actually the clothing store across the street when I was in junior high. I wasn't in that situation, thankfully. Praise God for that. But that's where the dust-ups happened. And he basically tells them, bring the prophets of Baal, and we're having a showdown on the top of Mount Carmel. He's not boastful, but he says, you need to bring them. So they do, and the showdown begins. Elijah makes a proposition to them that you build an altar and I'll build an altar. And if you call down fire from heaven, then your God indeed is God alone. If I call down fire from heaven, then this is God alone. Seems like a fair proposition to them. And they go first. And what begins to ensue once they've set up their altar is a scene of absolute mayhem, chaos, and madness. They're jumping, they're leaping, they're screaming, they're cutting themselves, they're bleeding all over the place, trying to prove to their gods that by what we're doing, by harming ourselves, we deserve to get a response. And the re- what Ella White says about this is absolutely amazing. She says, the sacrifice remains unconsumed. Nothing happens. Awkward silence for hours as they make fools of themselves for quite a while. 
And this keeps going on, and it eventually gets to the point that she says that the, the, the people who are watching here, because right before Elijah gives him this charge, he says, how long do you tarry between two opinions? If God is God, worship him. If Baal is God, worship him. And not a single soul would claim loyalty to Jehovah on that mountaintop. Zero. Not a single soul. And there's Israelites upon the top of this mountain, not just prophets of Baal. No one claims loyalty to Jehovah. But as time goes on, these people of Israel are starting to become weary. They grow weary of this type of religion, she says. They're not all that enthused about it. And eventually, they, they, they kind of ramp up the foolishness, seeing that God will respond. And Elijah then retali- I won't say retaliates, but Elijah says, you know, maybe, maybe your God is on vacation somewhere, right? Maybe he's fallen asleep or is on a journey. Maybe you should cry louder. Nothing changes. And eventually what ends up happening is she says that one person looks for one thing, another person looks at something else, and eventually they just kind of quit. They're depressed, they're dejected, and they're defeated. They look like fools. And then she says that the contrast is stark, because what eventually happens next is that Elijah repairs a torn-down altar to the Lord, he cuts the sacrifice, and then he tells them to, once he puts the sacrifice on top and digs a trench around it, He says, I want you to grab buckets of water. Now, are buckets of water easy to find at this stage, three and a half years into a large famine and drought? No. Now, how many pathfinders do we have in this room? I was baptized as a 25-year-old man with hair in his face, so I didn't do this. But I hear it's like the Boy Scouts. Is that right? Now, you've been trained to start a fire with your bare hands as pathfinders, right? If you're starting a fire with your bare hands, which he's not going to do, but if you're trying to start a fire, would you recommend what he's about to do? He literally tells them, grab water, and I want you to douse that thing, covering the entire sacrifice with water. Is that a good idea or a bad idea if you're wanting to start a fire? It's a bad idea. But he doesn't just say do it once. He doesn't just say do it twice. They do it three times so that not only is the sacrifice just dripping, but now the trench around the sacrifice is filled with water. And then the way that Elijah approaches his God is vastly different. What we're told is that Elijah kneels, And he offers a humble and simple prayer, knowing that God is there. And when he offers this prayer to God, asking him to vindicate the call that he has, this fireball comes out of heaven. Not only does it consume the sacrifice, it consumes the stones, and it even licks the water out of the trench. And the response of the people is, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Everyone on the mountain falls and claims loyalty to Jehovah, which they wouldn't do earlier. But now, it's it's just this amazing and stunning scene. And then Elijah says, grab the prophets of Baal and don't let a single one escape. And they do. They kill the prophets of Baal. And then he tells uh, Ahab to get you up from here for there's a sound of an abundance of rain, which sounds kind of crazy at this stage because there's nothing there. But he sends his prophet to go over to the lake to see what's there, what's going on. And when he comes back, he says, there's nothing. He says, go again. And there's nothing. He says, go again. And there's nothing. How many times does this go on? Seven times. And when the, pro- when, when the servant comes, it, I asked Pavel Goya, he was talking to me about this a few years ago, and he said that whenever he looked into it, there's a few things. First of all, when Elijah's praying, the posture that he assumes is not the posture that you and I would normally assume. He kneels down with his head between his knees, which, by the way, is the ideal posture if lightning is striking around you and you're in an open field. So you can, you can keep that one for free, no charge to you. But as, as he's doing this, 
and he's praying to God, he said that that posture, he had to do a lot of research because he's doing his dissertation on the topic of prayer throughout the Bible. And he says he found the answer that this is the posture, it's a posture of determination, right? Of refusal to accept a different answer. And I asked him about this because I know that numerology, numbers are very significant to Hebrews. And he says that this, the seven times he feels is more of an, an indication that Elijah would not receive an answer until what God had promised was complete. Right? We see persistence basically on both ends of this. But once Elijah does get a response from his servant, that there's a cloud the size of a man's hand, she says three words in response to this. Does anybody know what it is? This was enough. That was enough for him. Now, some of us, and maybe most of us, whenever we're looking for supernatural miracles, we want really big signs to not look like kooks and not look crazy, right? Like, God, what I need you to do is for this to be dry and that to be wet. And then tomorrow I need another confirmation for this to be wet and now that to be dry, right? But Elijah didn't need that. He just needed any evidence that God has heard, and that was enough for him. And, and would to God that I would respond that way. But he tells Ahab to get out of here, and what he ends up doing is girding the loins. Uh, it's basically like the folding of his robe thingy in a more dignified way to run. And he ends up running in front of Ahab's chariot because the sky has now gone from one cloud the size of a man's hand to this angry black cloud dropping buckets of rain. And I don't know if you've been in a situation where you're on the interstate and it's just, it's really hard to see. And you just kind of get behind a semi because it's raining so hard because they're not going to mash in the brakes real quick. And they'll kind of lead the way for you. This is basically what Elijah does all the way back to Jezreel. He leads this chariot all the way back. He's been fasting the entire day. He's weary. He's exhausted. And yet, once he does this, Ahab goes in and he tells Jezebel what has happened. And oh my, is she angry. She's livid. And she says, God, do so to me also if this man is not dead by tomorrow. Or within 24 hours, I forget how she phrases it. And Elijah is so exhausted once he gets to the edge of the city that he just lies down in the rain in his coat and just falls asleep. He's famished, he's tired, he's hungry. And word gets from Ahab's household to Elijah that they want him dead. And this is where Elijah's story takes a turn that you wouldn't expect in the trajectory of this narrative, right? He has this amazing crowning act of proving that God alone is God. And then what we begin to find is that Elijah begins to run for his life. And it's encouraging and scary all at the same time to know that someone who did something so amazing on behalf of God could still struggle. Kind of gives you a little bit of hope, doesn't it, right? Whenever I mess up, maybe you've had these experiences after a mountaintop you know, events, you gave a Bible study to somebody, you gave your first sermon or something awesome for God happened, and then this great discouragement happened after the fact, and you weren't who you thought you were. Elijah basically enters this experience, and he runs. But what we're also told in the Prophets and Kings is heartbreaking. Because what we're literally told is that had he stood his ground and not run, remembering that God had defended him from Jezebel earlier, Ahab would have been converted, Jezebel would have been judged, and the nation would have been brought to reform. What did he do? He ran. This guy is a loser for all intents and purposes. It, it, it's easy to assume as much, right? God wanted to do something amazing, and he failed miserably. And you just wonder, what's going to happen here? This is what we're told. Elijah had expected much from the miracle wrought on Carmel. 
He had hoped that after this display of God's power, Jezebel would no longer uh, hold sway over the mind or hold influence over the mind of Ahab, and that there would be what type of reform? A speedy reform throughout Israel. Time had something to do with his expectations on God. Maybe you've been there. You're expecting God to do something in a certain span of time, and it doesn't happen, right? And this greatly discouraged him. All day on Carmel's height, he had toiled without food. Yet when he guided the chariot of Ahab to the gate of Jezreel, his courage was strong, despite the physical strain under which he had labored. Right? was bulletproof to all this hardship. But listen to this. But a reaction such as frequently follows high faith and glorious success was pressing upon Elijah. He feared that the reformation begun on Carmel might not be lasting. You ever been there after your mountaintop experience for Jesus? You're almost distrustful that, I don't know if this is going to last. But then what does she say? Depression seized him. This is hours after he proves that God alone is God and sees this supernatural miracle. And depression seizes this man and he's now on the run. But she continues. He'd been exalted to Pisgah's top and now he was in the valley. Well, under the inspiration of the Almighty, he had stood the severest trial of faith. But in this time of discouragement, with Jezebel's threat sounding in his ears and Satan still apparently prevailing through the plotting of this wicked woman, what does it say next? He lost his hold on God. The man who proves that God is God alone within hours literally loses his hold on God. He's running from the call of God in his life and he's seized with depression. But she continues. He had been exalted above measure and the reaction was tremendous. Forgetting God, Elijah fled on and on until he found himself in a dreary waste alone. Utterly wearied, he sat down to rest under a juniper tree, and sitting there, he requested for himself that he might die. I don't want to live anymore. I don't want to see anyone anymore. I just want out. This is too much for me. I can't take this anymore. It is enough now, O Lord, he said. Take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. A fugitive far from the dwelling places of men, his spirits crushed by bitter disappointment, he desired never again to look upon the face of man, and at last, utterly exhausted, he fell asleep. How can this happen? How can a powerful man of God lose his bearings like this, forget God, lose his hold on God, be seized with depression, and run from the call of God in his life? How can that happen? Maybe you've been there. You had this amazing experience. You went on a mission trip. You did overseas mission work for years, maybe. Whatever it may be. And you thought, I'm never going back, Jesus. And then you find yourself in a situation that you never thought you would be in. And you start questioning everything. Things you never thought you would question. This is what happens to Elijah. But then he gets this angelic visit. He's awakened from his slumber... And when he awakes, there's this baked bread and a cruise of water, and he gives it to him. But Elijah is so exhausted that after he enjoys these things, or I don't know, joy, but after he eats these things, he falls back asleep. And then he awakes a second time, and he's given food and water again. And you know what this angel says to him? He says, arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. Now, here's why this is amazing. What journey? 
He's not on his way to a mission trip. Where he's actually going right now is Mount Sinai, is where he's going to end up. Mount Horeb is the same place. He's not going on a mission trip right now. He's running from God with everything that he has. And yet God sends miracle food to him twice to strengthen him for this journey? I think this is absolutely amazing. God literally sends a miracle meal from heaven to strengthen Elijah to keep running from himself. He's going to let him run it out. But God loves him so much that he doesn't want to make this run alone. And he comes and ministers to this man in the midst of running from God, forgetting God, losing his hold on God, and being seized with depression. The tenderness of God is on display in the midst of a horrific failure that did not lead to the reformation of Israel. Jesus is so amazing. And then he gets to Mount Sinai, and he literally has an encounter with God himself. And again, he's not looking there, he's not going there to talk to God. He's running as far as he can. But he can keep up with this. Amen? Doesn't matter how far and how fast, he's faster. And what I love is that God's response is so unexpected here. What I would expect is, I'm so disappointed in you, Elijah. I can't believe you did this, Elijah. But God doesn't do this. He doesn't criticize, shame, or condemn him. What he ends up doing is something that I just, I could not believe. There's a supernatural pyrotechnic display that takes place in front of him. But what does the text say about that pyrotechnic display? God was not in this. God was not in this. God was not in this. And then God approaches him with what? A still, small voice. And he asks him, what are you doing here? And Elijah's response is, you know, they're killing the prophets and I'm the only one left. That wasn't the question I asked you. I asked you a very simple question. What are you doing here? Who sent you? And this is what she says in commenting on this. Into the experience of all, there come times of keen disappointment and utter discouragement. Days when sorrow is the portion, and it's hard to believe that God is still the kind benefactor of his earthborn children. Days when troubles harass the soul, till death seems preferable to life. You ever been there? It is then that many, how many? Many lose their hold on God and are brought into the slavery of doubt, the bondage of unbelief. Could we at such times discern with spiritual insight the meaning of God's providences, we should see angels seeking to save us from what? Ourselves. Did you know that in our times of great discouragement, God is literally sending angels from heaven to save us from ourselves? I wish in my times of, of you know, success that God would send me angels to save me from myself, right? But in this situation, he's willing to do this for us. God's love is so profound here. Striving to plant our feet upon a foundation more firm than the everlasting hills and new faith, new life would spring into being. And I love what she says next. When I first read this chapter, chapters 12 and 13 in particular, it wrecked me. Just leveled me. 
And this section here was one of them. Did God forsake Elijah in his hour of trial? Oh no, she says. He loved his servant no less when Elijah felt himself forsaken of God and man than when in answer to prayer, fire flashed from heaven and illumined the mountaintop. When we crash and burn and even run from the call of God, he loves us no less then than he did when we were champions for God in the, in the flames of, of fury. I think this is amazing because it's the exact opposite of how we think God feels. But that's not what we're told. God loves us no less. And we really wrestle, and here's why. Because many times we project our unbelief in ourselves upon God. That God looks at me in the way that I look at me. That I'm a mess. That I can't get anything right. But that's not the faith of Jesus. And I love how he deals with us. And so again, God shows up and he asks this super simple question. What are you doing here? Who sends you? God doesn't yell at him. He doesn't shame him. What God eventually does is he tells Elijah, I need you. I'm not done with you. Go back. There's a large multitude who have not bowed the knee to Baal, and they need you for this reform to take place. And this reform eventually does take place. Jezebel is judged through the the work of Jehu and Elisha. God raises up people through Elijah who will do this. I didn't call you here, and I'm not giving up on you because you are here. Go back. This isn't what I had planned for you. I need you and go back. And if some of us are on the run this evening from a call of God in our lives, whatever it may be, he's chasing us down and he's asking the exact same question. What are you doing here? I need you and go back. God met his tried servant with the inquiry in 1 Kings 19.9. What doest thou here, Elijah? I sent you to the brook Cherith, and afterward to the window of Sarepta. I commissioned you to return to Israel and to stand before the idolatrous priests on Carmel. And I girded you with strength to guide the chariot of the king to the gate of Jezreel. But who sent you on this hasty flight into the wilderness? What errand have you here? Listen to what she says next. To every child of God whose voice the enemy of souls has succeeded in silencing, the question is addressed. What doest thou here? I commission you to go into all the world and preach the gospel, to prepare people for the day of God. Why are you here? Who sent you? Maybe the enemy of souls has silenced your voice this evening. You can't even get out of bed in the mornings. Can't even make sense of life right now. I've been there very recently for two straight years. But God kept nudging and letting me know, I'm still here. There's still work to do. I haven't left you. I haven't forsaken you. We'll talk about this tomorrow evening. Beloved, what are you doing here? What am I doing here? Why are we here? We need to go back. The work's not done. And God needs you. 
Not only does God love you, not only does God like you, and not only does God believe in you, he needs you. You're precious in his sight, and you possess great value. You're of infinite worth to God. And the reason why we're going through these times of discouragement and hardship is because not only does God believe in us, but Satan believes in you. And he knows what you're capable of. And I've come to to adopt the position that the amount of oppression a person receives, spiritual oppression that a person receives, is in direct proportion to the potential that they bear. And the reason why you always deal with hardship when you're trying to do work for God is because Satan sees what you're capable of. He believes in you, and God believes in you. But the question is, do you believe the things about you that God believes? And will you follow the call that he's given you? And if God has called you, do you think he's going to provide when you go? Of course he will. Why would he leave you? Through Elijah's inspiration, reform does come through Elisha and Jehu. Jezebel is judged, and what needed to happen still ends up getting done. This is the amazing thing. Sometimes we feel that whenever we really mess things up, I mean, there are times when God does have to move on and he uses other people. But God still is going to find ways to do what he can to try to get stuff done. And he would love to have you involved. God redeemed this work by chasing after Elijah. He reasons with him and he calls him back. And I love this. No matter how fast we run, he's chasing after us too. He knows where to find you. There's nowhere you can hide from him where he doesn't know, and he wants you back in his work. This is what she says. If under trying circumstances, men of spiritual power, pressed beyond measure, become discouraged and desponding, if at times they see nothing desirable in life, that they should choose it, this is nothing strange or new. You're not a loser for having these thoughts. Let all such remember that one of the mightiest of the prophets fled for his life before the rage of an infuriated woman. A fugitive, weary and travel-worn, bitter disappointment crushing his spirits, he asked that he might die. But it was when hope was gone and his life work seemed threatened with defeat that he learned one of the most precious lessons of his life. In the hour of his greatest weakness, he learned the need and the possibility of trusting God under circumstances the most forbidding. It takes moments like this for us to truly understand what it means to trust God. And sometimes we lose sight of it. Because he doesn't give up on us in the thick of our failure. He knows that. And that's why he doesn't give up on us in these situations. Because the class isn't over. We think that the class is about fire coming down from heaven. But it's not. The class is about what you're going to do in these moments. And what are you going to do in those times of discouragement? Are you going to get mad at God when the whole world falls apart around you and blame Him? Or will we trust God in the circumstances the most forbidding? Will we recognize that His gracious and tender dealings with us in our failures is evidence that He believes in me? And if He believes in me, the logical thing is to believe what He says. We're told in another place in the Spirit of Prophecy that we can please God by believing His promises. This is what the class is really about. This is what we have to learn in these moments. The good news is God does love you enough to track you down and ask you that question, what are you doing here? And inviting us to go back. I still need you and go back. 
Those who are standing in the forefront of the conflict and are impelled by the Holy Spirit to do a special work will frequently feel a reaction when the pressure is removed. Maybe you can vouch for this. Something awesome happens whenever you're in service for God. You go to GYC, you go to some other event, and you're just on the spiritual high. And then all of a sudden, right after that's over, there's this left hook that comes out of nowhere that you weren't waiting on, that you didn't even know would happen. You ever been there? Despondency, and it will frequently feel a reaction when that pressure is removed. Despondency, which is hopelessness, may shake the most heroic faith and weaken the most steadfast will. And then the next three words here literally just tore me to shreds when I read them. Because you think whenever I fall apart, whenever I'm filled with despondency and depression, and my heroic faith weakens, right, and my will weakens, you would assume that God is disappointed. God is frustrated. God's kind of face-palming in this moment. What are the next three words? But God understands, and he still pities and loves. He doesn't want this for us. This is not the ideal situation, but it ain't over. He understands why we're feeling these things, why we're wrestling with these things, and even in those moments of failure, he still pities and loves. He reads the motives and the purposes of the heart. To wait patiently, to trust when everything looks dark, is the lesson that the leaders in God's work need to learn. And it's not just the leaders. Heaven will not fail them in their day of adversity. Are you hearing me this evening? Nothing is apparently more helpless, yet really more invincible, than the soul that feels its nothingness and relies wholly on God. So when your life has been filled with failure, you can come to a God who knows no failure and who loves people who are filled with failure. Amen? Amen. Now, how Elijah's story ends here is so unexpected. Because you would assume that God's going to move on, cast this loser off, and find someone else who isn't going to chicken out. It's not how the story ends. God chases him down. He tells him, I love you, I need you, and go back. And Elijah does go back. He raises up Elisha, and eventually Jehu is going to be commissioned to do his work. And then God literally takes this man to heaven in a fiery chariot without tasting death. It's the most amazing ending. You would expect this ending right after Mount Carmel. But whenever this ugly chapter shows up, you think, no, it can't happen to him. He won't get that story. And yet God, even with this man, takes him to heaven without tasting death in a fiery chariot. Moses has somewhat of a similar story. Moses crashes and burns right on the edge of the promised land, just before receiving the promise, just like Elijah did. And God's dealings with Moses were very firm. They have to be. Leadership is held to a higher accountability. It's no joke. It's not to be taken lightly. He misrepresented the sacrifice of Christ by striking the rock twice instead of speaking to it. And he literally said, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Now, is Moses capable of bringing water out of a rock? He was claiming a divine prerogative in a moment of frustration. These people drove Moses crazy. There's literally a section, I believe it's in Numbers, where Moses literally tells God, he says, look, if you have any care or concern for me at all, kill me right here and right now because these people are driving me crazy. He literally tells that to God. And you ever been there? Parents, can I get an amen in front of your children? (laughs) And 
God has to deal firmly with Moses, and Moses dies before making it to the promised land. But God, in his great mercy and love for Moses, takes him up to Mount Nebo, and he gives him this panoramic view, not only the promised land, but also the timeline of what's going to happen, the future of Israel. And it's devastating. Because they're not going to live up to their potential. But the promise that God made to Israel will be fulfilled in a man named Jesus. The promised seed of Abraham. And he's going to die for the sin of the world and make a way for us to be reunited with our Father once again. And Moses is given this amazing panoramic view of all of this. Then he lays Moses to rest and God literally buries Moses himself. So that no one would build shrines and worship Moses. But I want to close with this interesting text found in Luke chapter 9. Turn with me here, would you? Luke chapter 9. We'll begin in verse 28. So, chapters and versification came later. Oh, that's in Matthew's account. No worry about that. But anyway, Jesus, in Luke chapter 9... In verse 28, it says, Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings. And the sayings are in a previous verse where he says that there are some of you who will not taste death to see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, I have some very simple questions for you. Has Jesus come back yet? No. Are any of these people still alive? Please explain, right? What ends up happening is, we're going to see something beautiful here in a moment, That God is literally giving a snapshot, an illustration of what the second coming is going to look like. And John, James, and Peter are given that snapshot that basically depicts what it's going to be like at the second coming of Jesus. you got Jesus in a glorified body, but then we have something else that takes place, beginning of verse 28. Eight days after this, he brings Peter, James, and John and goes up on the mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. And behold... Two men talked with him, who are who? Moses and Elijah. The two losers who blew it right before they received the promises of God. And yet they're speaking with Jesus. What are they talking about? His decease and what he was going to accomplish at Jerusalem. His sufferings. Now just imagine... Jesus is coming to terms with what this is going to cost him and could be prone in his flesh. We're told in in the Garden of Gethsemane chapter, we'll cover this on Sabbath, that his humanity shrank from this responsibility. And knowing that this would happen, God literally sends Moses and Elijah to speak to Jesus, to give him words of encouragement. Just imagine, guys. Imagine what happens in heaven. God literally says, Moses, come here. I want you to encourage my son. He understands the weight of what's coming before him, and I want you to tell him what you know and what you learned from your story, and that every one of the promises that I've made to him are still true. And Elijah, you're going too. You know what it's like. And both of these men are given this precious divine message from heaven. The two people who blew it to remind Jesus it's worth it, God will be with you to the end. And I think it's amazing. Who would expect their stories to look like this? Why would God use people like that? 
Shouldn't God use the people that have it together? Maybe part of the reason for this is to remind people like you and me that don't get everything right, that mess up a lot, that he's not done with us. That if he can do that for their story, he can do it for mine. This is what God wants for us. I think it's amazing. Moses represents those who will die before the second coming and be resurrected. Elijah represents those who will never taste death and be translated to heaven. They're literally given this snapshot of the second coming of Jesus. Some of you will not taste death till you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is what Jesus was referring to here. I think this is amazing. I think God deserves all glory and honor and praise for how he handles this situation because it's not how I would have handled it. I would have called in a relief pitcher, someone who didn't stink at life, and asked them to do the work. But God doesn't deal with us in the way that we would deal with each other, thankfully. Amen? But what I'd like to close with is a precious promise that we're given in Steps to Christ. Page 64.1. There are those who have known the pardoning love of Christ and who really desire to be children of God. Yet they realize that their character is imperfect, their life faulty, and they're ready to doubt whether their hearts have been renewed by the Holy Spirit. You ever been there? You tell Jesus, I will never do X ever again. And this time I mean it, Jesus, never again. Week goes by, maybe years go by, and you find yourself face in the rug over the same sin again, and you wonder, was any of it even real? Was it all a lie? She knows. She's been in situations like that. Read the first three chapters of the volume one of the testimonies. Ellen White is familiar with this feeling of just being cast off by God. But look what she says. Do not draw back in despair. We shall often, how frequently? Often have to bow down and weep at the feet of Jesus because of our shortcomings and mistakes. But we are not to be discouraged. Even if we are overcome by the enemy, we are not cast off, not forsaken, and rejected of God. No. Christ is at the right hand of God who also maketh intercession for us. Said the beloved John, These things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sins, we have what? An advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And do not forget the words of Christ. The Father himself loves you. You don't just have the love of Jesus. You have the love of the Father. Some of us have it really mixed up. We think that Jesus had to come to convince the Father to love us. But Romans 5 verse 8 tells us that God, because of his love for us, sent his Son to bring us home. Amen? He didn't have to convince the Father to love us. The Father already loves you. And the amazing thing is God's love for you is not dependent upon what you do. There are things that God expects, and we should not downplay those. And I do fully believe that God will transform a people on this planet who will fully reflect the character of God, who will show the unfallen worlds that God is not a liar, that he who has begun a good work will see it through to completion. I fully believe every bit of that. But the point is, in those moments of failure, God does not love you any less. Does he want you to fail? No. But if we fail, we have an advocate. And if we confess our sins, he's faithful. He's not going to fail you in doing so, and he's just in doing so. To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? There will come a time when you get off of that carpet for the last time with that sin. God has promised the transforming power of his spirit. But the point is, in those moments when you fall, and you will fall a lot, you're not cast off. You're not forsaken, no. 
And we're not to forget that the Father himself loves us. He desires to restore you to himself and to see his own purity and holiness reflected in you. And if you will but yield yourself to him, he that hath begun a good work in you will carry it forward to the day of Christ Jesus. Pray more fervently, believe more fully, and as we come to distrust our own power, let us trust the power of our Redeemer, and we shall praise him who is the health of our countenance. Amen? This is the promise that God has made for each of you. That's not the promise that he makes for the rock stars in the Bible. That's available to you and tonight. So if you found yourself losing your hold on God, forgetting God, being seized with depression, and running with everything that you have in the opposite direction of the call of God in your life, he can keep up. And he loves you enough to chase you down and ask you that question. What are you doing here? Who sent you? I still need you. Go back. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God in heaven, I thank you that your love indeed knows no bounds. You're not encouraging us to, to rebel. You're not encouraging us to sin. But if we sin, we have a God who loves us and pursues us nonetheless and does not want our life to continue to look like this and has the power available to transform the life. But God, I just pray that if we, in, in our moments of, of hate, self-hatred and discouragement, Lord, if we have projected our unbelief in ourselves and our hatred of ourselves upon you, that you would forgive us. That we would believe the things about us that you believe. And that even Satan himself believes the potential that we bear. And that we would choose to believe that every promise of God in Christ Jesus is yes and amen. And that he who has begun a good work in me hasn't forgotten about me. And he's faithful to see it through to the end. God, encourage your people this evening. If we're running, if we're discouraged, remind us of your love. Reaffirm your love to us. And Lord, I pray for freedom, for power, and for something that we have not yet fully experienced as we wish. We love you and we thank you. We ask these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.